Health and Wellbeing Queensland acknowledges the Yagara and Turrbal people, the traditional custodians on the lands on which this podcast was recorded, and the traditional custodians on the lands and waters on which you are listening. We pay our respects to the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander elders past and present, for they hold the memories of the traditions, cultures and aspirations of Australia's First Nations people. During this period of kids being at home so much, that reliance on screens and things for external communication has actually grown. And so the the screen sort of impact, I think, on sleep is probably we're just starting to see the effects of that. Welcome to the Clinician's Guide to Healthy Kids a podcast series for health professionals brought to you by Health and Wellbeing Queensland's Clinicians Hub. I'm your host, Dr Sam Manger, and in this series, we'll be diving deep into the topics that matter most in childhood weight management. We'll be talking to Queensland experts across a variety of topics, including sleep, disordered eating in higher weight children, prevention, and healthy growth with healthy diets. Let's get started. Today, we're going to discuss sleep. We know it is a superpower that we all need enough of, but what does that mean for kids and adolescents? And how can we support parents in this 24-7 social media, social computer games, catch-up TV, screening, adverts, encouraging binge-watching and all sorts of screens at our fingertips? We welcome Honey Hoisler to discuss. Honey is a developmental and sleep paediatrician based at the Queensland Children's Hospital. She's an adjunct associate professor at the University of Queensland. She worked clinically, is the medical director of child and youth community health services, as well as having a strong research program. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us, Honey. Thank you, Sam. So tell us a little bit about yourself and and why you got into this area and where your passions are. So sleep has always fascinated me because I think it's really absolutely one of the fundamentals to well-being that we have. And when I started out, and I don't want to really focus too much on how long I've been in the game, but actually the role of sleep was really very, very little was understood Mm. about the impact of that on um, children's health and well-being. In fact, I did my doctorate in this um, and the impact of poor sleep on children's behaviour way back in the early 1990s. So it is something that's always interested me and the impact, particularly on neurocognitive Mm. and behavioural facets, I think has been something that's just fascinated me. I think the brain is just such an interesting thing. Mm. Oh, well, we, we get, we're going to get along just fine, mate. <laughs> <laughs> it is fascinating. You're right. It is such an incredibly important area and, it, and very interesting over time, as you say, that it was perhaps not dismissed but not seen as the mm. huge role that it is. And now, luckily, more and more people are talking about it. Yep. So let, let's start with some current statistics about how much sleep Australian children and adolescents are getting at the moment. I think the answer is probably not enough. Mm. Um, there's something like 20 to 25 percent estimated children not getting recommended amounts of sleep. It's a little bit difficult to actually tease that out appropriately because there is a, a sort of percentile range of what is normal for an individual. So having an absolute number will sometimes misinterpret it, uh, misinterpret the 
kids who aren't getting enough sleep. So um, we would think that kids that fall within two standard deviations of that are probably not are probably getting enough, so long as they're not tired during the day. To me, that's the important thing that should run through every conversation about sleep. Mm, yeah, I've spoken to a number of sleep specialists, and that is one of the common take-homes you get is the number matters to some degree, but how is their energy levels and fatigue during the day? That's what that's what is a key indicator. Absolutely. You know, regardless of number. And I think in early childhood, as kids start school in that sort of five-year-old age group, there's still a, a proportion of those kids who aren't ready to give up daytime naps even and we push them into being awake all day and so some of that some of that societal push to fit in and fit a singular number sometimes is really tricky to manage I think. And so you say it's a a distribution so like a bell curve sort of distribution where you have the majority in the middle around so are there guidelines then on on how much or what sort of sleep we should be getting. So what's the sort of middle of that bell curve and what are the sort of ranges that it... it, it so it depends on the age. Yeah. Um, and as you are aware, when we're little, we need quite a lot of sleep. So <clears throat> in infancy, um, we spend a good proportion of the day. And then as we get older, that reduces. And we have what we call biphasic sleep, where we have a daytime nap. So we wean from frequent sleeps to biphasic sleep where we have a nap during the day and then into monophasic sleep where we have a single sleep period during the day. That varies for children um, as to when they actually give that up. Um, And when we think about that bell curve, there will be kids who still need 10 11 hours of sleep in primary school and there'll be other kids where eight is probably okay but it is primarily about the daytime function Mm. so there might be a child who's getting 10 hours of sleep but still needing a sleep during the day so that's when the sort of red flags start to arise but if you've got somebody who's sleeping eight hours and they're not sleepy coping fine no problems with school or academics or focus or mood then that's probably okay and we wouldn't chase it too hard and what about um up to to adolescence and secondary school because there's also the concern about the um the phase shift that occurs yeah. in the sense that they, they naturally prefer to w- go to bed late, wake up late, and school doesn't quite suit that very well sometimes. But. Yeah, so I think that it, it is a real issue in adolescence, and we think that part of the difficulty in adolescence is a decrease in their sensitivity to sleep pressure. So when we try, when we go off to sleep, some of it is our circadian rhythm mm-hmm. and our ultradian rhythm, which is sort of the hour and a half, two hour timing. Mm. But then sleep pressure is a key focus of that. So how long was it since you last had slow wave sleep or deep sleep? And for adolescents, their sensitivity to that is less. And so they feel less tired for the same amount of time. So it will take them longer 
to achieve the same amount of sleep pressure, which is why they stay up later and later. And the challenge is that actually in adolescence, you still need quite a lot of sleep, mm. probably more than most adolescents would think. So definitely sort of in that sort of nine to 10 hour range is probably a healthy amount of sleep. The challenge is if you're not feeling sleepy and you've got lots of school and academic pressure and homework pressure and trying to have some downtime, it actually really impacts on that lead up to sleep and contributes somewhat, I think, to them not accessing sleep or setting up good routines to get off to sleep and manage that reduced sleep pressure, mm. which is hard to manage um, for some kids. Some kids are affected worse than others, yeah. um, but it is a really difficult thing. I try and take away from adolescents that um, sort of concept that they don't want to go to sleep and it's all about them just misbehaving and not wanting to go to sleep because, in fact, it is a real thing, that lack of sleep pressure. So when you describe it like that and talk to them about managing sleep pressure, it's often a little bit less um, stigmatising mm. and sort of in terms of a voluntary control thing. Yes, yep. And so that can be an easier way to approach that conversation with an adolescent who's really struggling to get off to sleep at the right time. Yeah, that is fascinating. The because nine hours for an adolescent is still it's that's that's a fair chunk. And if they're getting up at you know have to get up at six thirty say or seven o'clock for school, that means that's they need to be in bed by ten. And I don't think that there's many adolescents. No, <laughs> no, absolutely bed, going to bed cleanly yeah. as it were and sense yeah. just uh, straight to sleep without having any distractions. Absolutely, like I think by, it's by 10. really tricky for them. Um, yeah. So the that sleep pressure you mentioned is the sort of adenosine drive and other sort of factors that sort of play into the physiology there. And yeah, when you when you look at the data over years that's been collected, the amount of slow wave sleep drops quite sharply in that sort of early adolescence, so that 12, 13 sort of age group, and that's where we start to see most of the problems. Usually by the time kids are a bit older, they've got more into the run of things, mm. but that sort of early high school, you know, thing is really problematic. And unfortunately for our 12 and 13-year-olds these days, they're dealing with a lot of societal peer pressures, things going on at the same time, you know, year seven being in high school, mm. year nine, you know, teachers will all tell you these are the really tricky years in terms of getting kids through that. So the sort of peer stuff, the mood stuff that can go on, you know, getting good quality sleep to be able to get yourself through that is really, really important. So that's that's perfect because it takes me to my next question about what, what is impacting child and adolescent's ability to sleep most. And you've mentioned a number of factors there, mm. but uh, uh, there is obviously some biological factors there, as you said, yep. a sort of insensitivity to sleep drive and sleep pressure uh, through adolescence. But then there's a lot of socio-cultural factors there. There's the schooling, there's the, as you said, the pressure to go to kindy and prep and not have that nap so much during the day at age five. And so there are varying factors there that are impacting uh, sleep. But what else are the sort of big factors that you see as, a, as an expert here? I think the big factors are often that sort of anxiety, sort of um, trying to 
rehash and sort through things in your mind for mm-hmm. many kids. And I certainly deal with a, a population of people who have lots of challenges in development and anxiety about how things are going to happen mm. and what have you. And so that in itself can be really problematic. So those kids are a little bit anxious. And, you know, I strongly believe that since COVID's been here in the last couple of years, that has actually increased. Mm. And the numbers of kids who are finding it really difficult to get back out into the world, I think does impact on sleep. And I think really, and this is probably as much personal experience as anything, that during this period of kids being at home so much, that reliance on screens and things for external communication mm. has actually grown. And so the, the screen sort of impact, I think, on sleep is probably we're just starting to see the effects of that. The challenges with screens are really difficult. There is this sort of impact of white and blue light on melatonin production, which we know exists, how much we get from a screen and how much it really impacts, we're not entirely sure whether that's clinically significant yet. Um, It's probably that there are some people who are more sensitive than others. Mm. Um, But people are exploring now very much the... Um, role of engagement of what you're doing Mm. on screens rather than actually it being solely a blue light issue so that, you know, being really hard to put down the screen because you just want to scroll through another video or actually all my friends are online now so, you know, I need to actually respond to that text message Mm. that somebody Mm. sent me or that, you know, Snapchat message or what have you because there is always other people up. And I think, you know, that where people have become less used to going out of the house and seeing people and having face-to-face interactions, that reliance on technology for your social interactions, I think we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg here. And so, you know, I see that with a lot of people who really struggle with social interaction and get very addicted to gaming at night because there's always somebody else in the world who's up mm-hmm. who can do online mm-hmm. gaming with you and if you struggle socially you might perceive these people as being your friends and it's a social interaction for you as opposed to a pure addiction and then it becomes an addiction so it's a really complex sort of thing to try and tease out. And I think that that is something that would often be very difficult in a short consultation to try and tease out and work your way through and may need sort of additional supports. But exploring the motivation behind what goes on, I think, is really important. A good take home. Yeah. yeah. that's right. It is fascinating, that whole conversation, because it is clearly a relatively recent cultural phenomena, the, the screens uh, being so pervasively accessible and mm. then also so stimulating with social media and scrolling and that sort of stuff when you have uh, these short short videos and TikTok and things like that that are becoming the cultural norm and even surpassing other social medias. So, as you say, it 
the blue light is fascinating that, yes, some may be more sensitive to others, and that makes total sense given what we know about the general personalised nature of everything in the human being. Yeah. Uh, but the nature of the screen use, so how stimulating it is, yeah. you know, you can imagine just a very high uh, impact, very stimulating game, for example, those neurons are firing, and when those eyes close, those, <laughs> those neurons are still firing. And, um, and the ruminating, as you say, the anxiety or the ruminating around the chat and conversations uh, without that face-to-face there's perhaps not as much closure and words and emojis are so easily misunderstood so um, that 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 breeds a sort of potential for autonomic negative thoughts to creep in and and then anxiety to spiral and and so on so absolutely and i i do think that you know the age group particularly as we go into adolescence that move for a proportion of the population to be less active at that time. I think, you know, one of the things I always talk about is making day different tonight. Mm. So day being about activity, brain stimulation, doing all of those things, and night being about calm and those sorts of things. But if your day is not very active, you're inside all day, you're on screens all day, and you're doing the same things at night... Getting that switch, mm. I think, is really difficult for people. Um, and, you know, often talk about being physically tired and brain tired and how you work your way through that can sometimes be um, helpful as well if we're talking activity and its role in supporting sleep. And that's daytime activity, really. Yeah, yeah. Probably. Yeah, that's a nice... Uh Again, another take-home when we think about what are the changing activities between a daytime and a nighttime scenario and even mm. just sort of mapping that out uh, can be helpful. I certainly know that a lot of uh, parents themselves might engage in those behaviours at nighttime too because it might be the only time uh, they get with their kids <laughs> in bed and that spirals that problem too, so they wake up. With it can kids. be helpful though because if you can talk a parent through how they get mm. over-engaged in it, they can start to understand how their child might get over-engaged in yeah. it. And so I often use that parental sort of online stuff yeah. to actually try and help them understand what the child is struggling to give up. Because if the parent's struggling to give up, the yeah. child's going to struggle to give up. And yeah. you can actually use that sometimes to actually talk a parent through the child's challenges because often they'll be asking something of a child that that they're not doing themselves. And so supporting that can sometimes be a hook as well a little bit. Yeah, That's a good idea, sort of lived experience of... uh, Yeah, totally. ...somewhat addictions, yes. Mm. We'll be back after this short break. PodSquad is a free play-based learning app to help families create healthy habits. Together... Carers and kids will explore and grow in the magical world of Amago, and with a little help from a lot of cute, colourful, clever characters called Epipods, they'll learn lots too. Like the importance of nutrition, getting active and sleep, sweet, precious sleep. So to build healthy habits that last, just send in the squad. Download Pod Squad today, it's free. And now back to the show. And so... Now, we mentioned what the impact, what happens to, to 
to many children, most children, if they can't get enough sleep, and, and we've highlighted one there being sort of daytime somnolence and fatigue being a key one. And we've also touched around a few other things. And I'm curious to know what are the other symptoms that can flow on to. You mentioned your PhD was in uh, behavior, and so that can be one of those tricky ones where, where I've, as a GP, I see it a lot, where you, uh, children present with behavioral difficulties in school or attention problems or et cetera at home. And and yes, it could be something like ADHD or some concern like that, but you've got to check sleep first. You absolutely have to check sleep first because there's been a number of times where you fix the sleep inverted commas through one means or another and their behaviours, you know, drastically improve. So, so clearly in younger children, you know, they're not going to come up to you and say, I'm tired. Well, they might, but, but more likely they're going to sort of be emotionally dysregulated in some way. Yeah. I think there's fairly good evidence, really, that poor sleep um, impacts mood, impacts focus and attention and regulation, you know, and I think that's that's pretty clear in the evidence these days. What is less clear is the impact on learning mm. and the impact on neurocognition, you know, in terms of, you know, cognitive abilities. That may be a time factor, maybe it's a exposure sort of factor, um, but it is probably more that impact of focus, attention, concentration, hyperactivity, as most of us who are parents will realise, you know, kids are busy when they're tired, they mm. move more and they're trying to stay awake, or they may mo- watch TV and things like that because they're getting fast input, so it's keeping them awake. And so thinking about those sorts of things in terms of trying to determine whether a child is tired during the day. And again, I often bring it back to the parents, you know, they're saying their kid's having more tantrums or what have you, and I say, well, how do you feel when you haven't had enough sleep? And most people will agree they've got a short fuse, they're less happy with stuff, you know, and you can start to talk them through why sleep might be important and impacting on their child's behaviour a little bit to try and get that motivation for modification of sleep behaviour and sort of time. What isn't really clear um, always is the uh, whether it's amount of sleep or fragmentation of sleep that is having the biggest impact on that. So we're still, the jury's still out a little bit on that sort of stuff. Mm, that's very interesting and very interesting to hear what comes of all of this. Is there much evidence around impact on development? So there is a little bit out there, but it's still a little bit sort of, you know, there's some that say yes, there's some that say no. Um, It's very complex, obviously, as well. (laughs) Most of it's still around obstructive sleep apnea. Mm -hmm. In terms of behavioural intervention and development is less certain, I think, you know. But remember to learn and do all those sorts of things we require in development, you actually need to be able to pay attention, you need to be able to self-regulate, and you need to be able to, you know, cope with change and moving on. And when you're tired, that's not very easy to do. So is it those things that is having an impact on the development, or is the poor sleep having an impact directly? And it's a little bit confounding still, 
as to which is the greater impact mm. on the actual developmental trajectory for those kids. Does that make sense? It does, yep. Yeah. No, watch this space, I think, is the take. <laughs> yeah, yeah, watch this space. And I, I think where you've got a child who's presenting with some of those dysregulation, mood, attention, focus, absolutely questioning about sleep is probably your first step. Mm. Um, the challenges are that if we've got someone who has a disorder of hypersomnolence per se, actually what we do is we use stimulants to manage that. So it gets a bit confusing sometimes for families to be able to understand sort of what we're doing and how mm. we're treating it. And the yeah. reasoning, yeah. yeah. Now on the other end of the spectrum, what happens if a child sleeps too much? Okay, so if a child is sleeping too much, there are what we call disorders of excessive sleepiness. Um, so DOES, which mm -hmm. is what we would call them, as opposed to disorders of initiating and maintaining sleep, which is where they're not getting enough. Mm -hmm. um, so the first thing is, if you've got that, is to check whether the child is truly getting enough sleep. Mm -hmm. So once you get to about seven or eight, parents don't always wake up when a child wakes up. So it's really important to understand what that child's sleep is like. You know, we have kids that might be awake for three hours during the night yep. and their parents are no longer aware because they don't go and get yep. their parents So it's a anymore. false positive, as it were. Yeah, yep. absolutely. So you've got to be clear the child is actually getting enough sleep. But if they're then getting too much sleep, there are a number of disorders of hypersomnolence and there are some things that we need to check out and make sure um, that are not there. So, you know, for example, thyroid function, um, you know, those sorts of things that we would need to make sure, um, post-viral syndromes, those sorts of things that need to be excluded. And then there's two or three particular disorders, such as narcolepsy, um, where we need to do some further investigation to make sure that those kids don't actually have a true disorder of excessive mm. sleepiness. There are um, specific tests that we would do in a sleep laboratory to look at that. But one of the key questions to try and work out whether a person might have narcolepsy is actually do they fall asleep in unusual situations? So do they fall asleep, you know, face plant in the dinner table? Do they fall asleep sitting on the stairs? Do they fall asleep, you know, at a party, you know, hanging on to mum's leg? Do You know, most of those things are really important. It's really hard to make that diagnosis before about the age of eight, though. So we will often try and manage and work out, you know, what is happening before that. But most of those disorders become much clearer in that late primary mm. sort of age group. But the key question is, do they fall asleep in weird places? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and trying to get a really accurate sleep assessment and history totally. clearly matters. Yeah. So that that's, takes me to the next question about, because you're a sleep specialist, so you obviously do lots of consults on this with, with, with children and families. Mm -hmm. So can you briefly describe what your assessment would be and, and how long would that take? So the 
I probably do it in quite a lot of detail because the population I see are often kids with developmental problems as well. So I really need to clearly understand the personality and the temperament of the child and how they fit within the family. Mm. I ask about the sleep environment. So are they in a room with five other kids or are they in a room on their own? Do they live next to a highway? You know, those sorts of questions. Mm -hmm. I then... Probably the three key questions I would ask is, are they tired during the day? Are they hard to wake up in the morning? And are they difficult to get to sleep at the beginning of the night? And if I had to have a fourth, it would be, do they wake up during Mm. the night? And the additional questions would be around whether they snore, whether there might be other reasons for waking up during the night. So that might be if they have seizures or snoring or, you know severe eczema, asthma, those sorts of things can wake you during the night. Mm -hmm. So I would ask about those medical things and then those, well, they're four questions, aren't they really? The tiredness during the day, the regular wake-up time, are they hard to wake up? You can often tease that out by asking if they they sleep in on the weekends and how long that sleep in Mm. might be. And then are they difficult to get off to bed at the beginning of the night? Mm. So that makes sense. So you get a good sleep history first in the sense of, as you said, time to get to sleep, maintenance of that sleep, and then waking uh, and what that experience is like, and then the sleep environment and the context of their sleep, including a pre-sleep sort of routines or what Mm -hmm. they do before bed, and then the sleep environment. And then once you've got a really good sleep assessment, then you're thinking about what are the causes, potentially causes, and that could be medical conditions, like itch of of eczema or obviously sleep apnea and other problems, and consequences of that. So daytime fatigue. Uh, you know, mental health changes, behavioural changes, etc. So that seems to be a sleep assessment cause and consequence, a nice way to sort of break yeah. it up. And what the, the what are the most common sleep disorders we see in young Australians? I mean, in, in adults we see structured sleep apnea, restless legs, and then you know, good old-fashioned insomnia. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, what, what's the sort of distribution in, in, in young Australians? So in young children, well, there's often a lot of um, obstructive sleep apnea in that sort of four to six age group when their tonsils are at Mm. maximum size. But about 80% of those are cured by getting their tonsils out. So that aside, we often see um, things like limit setting disorder where um, children will come in and out of the room quite a lot. Now, whether that's related to what translates to insomnia in adulthood is a little bit of a question, Um, but setting clear limits can be really helpful. The other thing that is really common in young children, particularly early childhood, but does go through to primary school, is that sleep association. So setting yourself up in the way and the environment that you're going to wake up during the night. So as we all know, we arouse multiple times during the night as we transition between sleep stages. And for most of us, when we arouse, we sort of open half an eye, everything's the same as when we went to bed, goes back to sleep, and that's pretty normal. However, when kids fall asleep on a couch with the TV on, mum and dad around, and then get transitioned Mm. to a room where nobody else is around and they wake up for their first arousal and it's dark, there's no noise, no Mm. parents around, all of a sudden they're fully awake. And they need to recreate 
that situation to be able to get back to sleep. And so these are the kids who might fall asleep in mum's and dad's bed or cuddling up to them and then come in all night wanting to sleep with mum's and dad's bed. And the parents might try to get them back to bed but then eventually give up because they're exhausted themselves. And so you get that reinforcing of that behaviour. So that sleep association of the conditions that you need to be able to go off to sleep Mm. is really, really key to set that up well right in the beginning. And the sooner you can do that and work with it, the better. Um, So there might be times when you need to be with your child or the child needs to be with a parent to go off to sleep if they're unwell or something. But as soon as they're well, it needs to go back to the same sleep association. Mm. Um, So going to bed in their own bed, you know, going to bed with... Similar lighting, similar Similar lighting. You know, these people that use music to get off to sleep, you know, well, actually that music needs to play all night. Exactly. You know, those sorts of principles are really, really key. Mm. By the time the parents get to a sleep specialist, however they're exhausted because they've been trying to push back against this forever. And so what we would generally do there is get the people to set up the beginning of the night really well and just go with the flow for the rest of the night. So really manage the beginning of the night with routine, sleep environment, set up the night as you mean to go on and see how that goes. That's That can be really tricky as you're adjusting that sleep association. So getting a parent out of the room, you know, often parents will get to the door and then it becomes really tricky. So we might use something called a checking in method where the parent goes out, comes back, goes out, comes back, you know, so that the child gets used to the parent ducking out for a Mm. bit. And eventually will you extend that time and the parent, the child will fall asleep. So there's lots of really key little tweaks you can do that will actually start the beginning of the night in the right way as you're trying to get that sleep association right to not involve a parent waking up other people, all of those sorts of things. That's some fantastic tips. The uh, So you mentioned this, I'll just surmise a few but yeah. the you mentioned the snoring and we have to to check those tonsils so you got to try yeah. with behavioral concerns mood concerns or, or daytime fatigue open the mouth look at the back of the throat number one uh, make sure there's no giant tonsils there obstructing their sleep tonsils and, and nose and actually. adenoids yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, be careful of those and uh, sleep associations being very important especially to try and anchor that uh, well and establish that well at the beginning of the night and then you know see where it takes you but setting them up in the environment in the setting where they're going to ideally stay the whole night <laughs> at some point um, so this takes us to sleep hygiene because this is a term that is used a lot so I was wondering if you could just define this a little bit for us and you've already given us a raft of quite practical goals to work with around sleep environments uh, sleep associations and obviously some things to to, to keep an eye on. Are there any other high-yield sleep hygiene uh, practices that you find just uh, foundational to, to good sleep? I think the biggest things are having a routine um, and making sure that you're, um, you don't have bright lights on. Um, so the dim light is really key. Having um, calming activities and calming activities 
don't include, you know, loud music or action movies or those sorts of things. They need to be calming. So they might be, you know, playing cards or reading or something that is much calmer. Some of those children that are really busy still, as they get tighter, they get busier. I will often advocate, particularly when they're younger, that parents read a book but actually sit them on their lap so they've got their arms around them mm. to try and teach the child to calm yeah. a little bit. So that can be a helpful so like thing. role model stillness in some Yeah, modelling yeah. stillness. Yeah. You know, you can do all those games when kids are like that, you know, statues and things yes. like that to yeah. help kids get movement and still in sort of as part of their repertoire yeah. over time. But that's those little tricks can sometimes help kids learn to calm and still. You can teach them breathing, relaxation things, those sorts of things. But one of the key things we're learning more and more is actually the wake-up time is mm-hmm. key and setting a key wake-up time and everybody sticking to that. And sticking to it on the weekends as well, not letting it slide more than half an hour. We're all guilty of, you know, relishing the odd weekend sleep in. But more and more we're starting to understand that variability in sleep is a problem. And so keeping that wake-up time fairly solid actually is part of sleep hygiene as well as early in the night. So not eating too close to bed, but making sure it's good quality GI food that's Mm. going to last during the night, making sure that we've got, um, you know, teeth clean, routine, calm activities, lower light if we can, and setting that up sort of appropriately. Some people these days do need, you know, a little bit of music in an ideal world, no music. But for those kids that are a bit anxious and everything that goes bump in the night or live next to a highway, sometimes a bit of white noise can actually block out those other noises, you know, possums in the trees, those Mm -hmm. sorts of things that can alarm young children. Um, So just thinking through those things as an individual. But if you do start it, it needs to be there all night. Yeah. Needs the sort of key setup, I think. Yeah, fascinating. The key wake up time is uh, very interesting too. Yeah. I'd love to spend a whole another hour with you talking sleep physiology, but <laughs> <laughs> sadly our limits are existing. That's true. Um, so, and then we 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 touched on screen time earlier and how that this is a, a growing challenge. Uh, but there are obviously opportunities there, so I'm not trying to be uh, ideological about it. But the, what's your advice around screen un- usage before uh, so bedtime and in that, as you said, we're, we're trying to change activities from day to night. So is, is, it, is your advice no screens, but if must have screens, is there at least some less uh, pathological styles that we can do? So, I think, you know, there's no evidence really, but I would be suggesting that sort of calmer things would be more appropriate. So, instead of a game, maybe a movie and a a movie that a parent has some control over, so not 
action movies or aggression or things that are scary, you know, it's still quite surprising to me how many kids are watching movies that I wouldn't watch mm. before I went to bed. Um, so just being really clear about what kids might have on in the room. If at all possible, what I... And parents, not all parents can read well enough or can engage in that reading, although we would like them to read and we know the benefits of reading to young children but some parents really struggle with that so for families like that I will often advocate trying to get some audio books that the kids can mm. listen to of nice calming sorts of stories that have nice endings you know those sorts of things that can you know be very Calming, but are actually a story for a child, and especially if it's associated with a book that the child could read, mm. and then encourage the parent to be there because some parents it's, don't find that easy. And so, transitioning a child from watching movies to an audio book or an audio story might be the next thing and I've tried that successfully with a few kids so that can sometimes be helpful but then again if they fall asleep listening to that there needs to be something going on mm. all night and something that's suitable that the child's not going to get up and watch yeah. something they shouldn't be during the night so if at all possible I try to make sure that it gets turned off yeah. before the child actually goes to sleep because that's the key thing. It's that sleep association, isn't it? Where if you go to sleep listening to something, then you kind of need it on to get back to sleep. So if you can actually get the child to listen to something, then turn it off and then go to sleep is often the way to try and work through that. So I might get them doing that but then it goes off at a certain time and then they try and get to sleep, yeah. And that fits into the routine idea, you know, it's, it's done now, now it's time to wind the body down and self-soothe, self, yeah. self as it were. Um, now, but what about adolescence? So this is probably one of the hardest questions you'll get. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, certainly as a, as a GP, I'm seeing this, as you said, COVID has really uh, increased this, but this was certainly a trend that was increasing before COVID is the amount of, you've mentioned gaming before, so gaming is a, a real thing and, and often kids are sort of locked in their room, their parents are asleep and they're just gaming until who knows yep. when, two in the morning. And, and or just smartphone access and them just sort of scrolling through social media. So ha have you reflected on much about what we can do about this in a practical way? Because it's, it's a real challenge. I think education is key. Um, it is really difficult because for many of these kids, as I said before, this has been a key factor of their social mm. engagement for the last two or three years. And I agree it was increasing before COVID, but I think COVID's mm. just exacerbated it. I do try and talk kids through access but limited to daytime. And so that, you know, that old adage of phones charging in a parent's bedroom or mm -hmm. something during the night so kids don't have access to them during the night. But again, that needs to be modelled, I think, with parents because parents, kids will often go to bed and parents might be scrolling through their own social media stuff. Mm -hmm. And actually, maybe it should be a rule that everybody in the family 
has them locked in the kitchen. Yeah, you know, those do what sorts I say rather than... Yeah, do as I say, not, not as I, I do, do exactly. sort of thing. Um, or do as I do, rather. You know, yes, doing some more modelling. I think that sort of... What I try and do in a, in a sort of clinic, you know, where somebody's really struggling with that, I try and talk them through what that social media stuff is. Is it about the social engagement or are they just bored? You know, what is it? Mm. And if it's about social engagement, what I try and do is talk them through, you know, limiting the time they're on it but then rewarding themselves with a social activity. So seeing if the parents could reward them with some, you know, movie tickets with a friend or, you know, something that can be a goal for them to work through that might replace some of that social thing. You know, I think families are so busy too. You know, the old days where kids were driven around and, you know, had social activities after school really sort of limited you know kids used to be used to do a lot of social stuff hang out with the kids on the street go and do other things but often they come home and just a home after school and so trying to engage in external activities I think which is limiting in this day and age mm. I think is actually really key mm. so sport activities you know those sorts of things I think are really key. Um, not not exact science, I have to admit, but trying to find avenues to get them out and engaging socially separate from that so that they can see the difference between a purely social online engagement mm. versus a, you know, face-to-face. Yeah, it's very hard to remove one thing and not replace it with something, totally. especially if that's a very you know, clearly on the social media side of things from just the dopamine reward drive and other aspects are clearly rewarding uh, stimulus, inverted commas, I mean rewarding in the yeah. sense of sort of neurotransmitter rewarding. And the, But you've, you've got to replace it with something that is in, in at least... Uh, as engaging, you know, and mm. and ideally more so because it's face to face and it's, but it is as you said, it's, it's common sense to some degree. Returning to those uh, roots of health, you know, social engagement, good physical activity, so that as you said, that's a clear daytime activity. Nighttime, we're winding down, so it makes a lot of sense. We'll be back after this short message. Unhealthy weight is one of our greatest public health challenges. Two in three Queensland adults and one in four children live with overweight or obesity. We need to shift the dial. That's why Health and Wellbeing Queensland has created Clinicians Hub for you, our clinical workforce. Clinicians Hub is a digital ecosystem of initiatives, resources, and tools, including this podcast series, for multidisciplinary health professionals to support best practice prevention, identification, treatment, and management of overweight or obesity, And it offers a variety of clinical tools and training to help you transform health for children, adults, and families. Find out how Clinicians Hub can help you at hw.qld.gov.au forward slash hub. And now back to the show. Now, are there any red flags that we've missed in our conversation that you think listeners who are healthcare professionals really need to keep a... Uh, an ear out and an eye out for? I think some of the red flags are that falling asleep 
in uncontrolled places. Mm -hmm. I think that absolutely needs to be sort of managed. I think red flags with um, obstructive sleep apnea, particularly with increasing weight in young children, I think is really important. You know, when I started doing sleep medicine, we didn't have as much obesity and we saw a different profile of obstructive sleep apnea. But as times progressed, we're seeing much more of that adult Mm -hmm. obstructive sleep apnea, obesity type Mm -hmm. of picture. So I think that is one thing that is um, a real red flag for us. And they're probably the kids that do need to be really referred so that we can actually manage the obstructive sleep apnea to allow that person to be much less tired, to actually be able to action some strategies. Because if you're overweight, you've got obstructive sleep apnea, you're tired during the day, your chances of being able to manage that and manage intake and manage activity are probably markedly reduced. Mm. And so that to me is a really key red flag if you suspect there's obstructive sleep apnea. Other medical things need to be managed. So those sorts of things we talked about, such as severe eczema, and then probably that falling asleep during the day. The other thing I'd be really sort of keen for us to try and get on top of really early is where there's that increasing difficulty in getting someone off gaming because I think if that's really entrenched it is so hard to move so the earlier we can get on top of that the better. Fantastic now you mentioned there around a few indications for referral to a sleep specialist yeah you said there around some cases of obstructive sleep apnea where there's also comorbid metabolic or higher weight concerns. Mm-hmm. Um, and what are the other, and narcolepsy being another one, as you say, daytime, falling asleep in, in mm-hmm. odd places during the day would be a very clear indication for a referral. Are there any other, I imagine there's quite a list, but what are the other main conditions which you would really want to see from a sleep specialist point of view be referred to? I think as a sleep specialist, the the key things when we do a sleep study, for example, so lots of people get referred for a sleep study, mm. but the key things we do in a sleep study is actually rule out obstructive sleep apnea or look for neurological causes such as seizures or those sorts of things. But if it's more about getting off to bed, frequent waking, that's probably not going to come out in a sleep study. And it's probably um, those sorts of things we can investigate using other things such as activity monitors, diaries, those sorts of things. In terms of referrals, I think, you know, where someone is concerned about obstructive sleep apnea, and again, tiredness during the day is often a key factor with that. Um, The... Snoring on its own without pauses or disrupted sleep or tiredness during the day, you know, we're happy to see but won't always proceed directly if there's no sort of craniofacial features that we might think. Um, The other things is where we have kids with developmental disabilities and basic sleep hygiene and those things have not been able to work, 
then I think some of those kids will need a sleep review or a specialist review just because of the additional challenges the kids with neurodevelopmental disabilities can have. Mm. We still apply the same sleep hygiene and the same management strategies, but they can be a little bit more resistant to those strategies and sometimes need a little bit more adaption of the basic premises of sleep hygiene to be able to get some traction on the sleep difficulties that those kids have. Mm. So they might be the probably the three things, so that excessive tiredness during the day and impact on learning, development, yep. behaviour. Function, yep. Often I would recommend that actually if people have been able to work on the sleep hygiene, the sleep associations, those things beforehand, that should be able to be sort of managed within a primary care setting. But it's that when that isn't working, mm. I think is a very valid referral through to sleep physicians. Great to know. I might be opening a can of worms here, but do you ever... You mentioned um, activity overnight, so actigraphy or, or actographs. Do you ever use those? Because there's loads of devices these days. I know they're for adults mm. primarily, rings and watches and uh, phones, obviously, and other aspects that you can use to monitor sleep. And I know that there are pros and cons to those and varying degrees of accuracy and, and all that sort of stuff. But um, are there any, do you ever use it for children to see? And if so, what devices might you use? So there are activity monitors that are validated for use in children um, and we do use those mainly for total sleep time, sleep onset latency, mm. those sorts of things. They're quite reasonable when compared against PSG. Mm-hmm. So we will use those. When you use commercial products, there are varying degrees of validity. So if that's all you could use, then you would use it but take it with a grain of salt. If they put up something that was particularly alarming, you might have a look at it. But you would potentially look mainly for change within an individual rather than comparing their results to everybody else's. Does that make sense? Makes total sense. Yeah. Trend. So... Their, their, their actigraphy looks like X and that might demonstrate some concerns and that may correlate with your sleep assessment, say frequent waking yeah. or something like that. Uh, and then you say, okay, now let's do an intervention of some sleep hygiene association management things and now keep monitoring, oh, we're seeing improvements. Yeah. So we know that we're probably making a difference or we're not seeing improvements, you know, this might be time to refer off or something like that. And sometimes I'll use it, you know, where somebody might be remote yes. and... The mum's got a Fitbit or something like that, so you pop it on her ha- on the child overnight, um, mainly to check and see if there's a large wake period. Yep. And so, what you might find in a eight or nine year old is that they might have three hours awake during the night the parents aren't aware of, mm. and while we don't necessarily always take that as gospel, it would warrant further investigation if that was there. So I might use it as a bit of a screener. Yeah. But don't 
With a grain of salt. With a grain of with salt. With a few grains of salt. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we do, where people are concerned about um, potential obstructive sleep apnea, we will often use an overnight oxygen run to look at clusters of desaturations in REM, which is pretty characteristic of obstructive sleep apnea. So that we might use some in some circumstances to try and prioritise or try and figure out whether they're going to fit into a more severe category mm. of obstructive sleep apnea. So we will use those occasionally, um, but that's done from a sleep clinic yeah. per se, yeah. And you mentioned there around patients who are in potentially rural or remote situations, they might just use what they can get. So what, obviously Queensland's a very big place and there's lots of rural and remote communities. So if they don't have a sleep specialist visiting or in the local area, What's the advice for them? Do you do a lot of um, sort of remote monitoring in that sense? Is that how you work as a sort of central system? or So here in Queensland, yeah, we yeah. are a centralised service. So the Children's Hospital has the sleep service for the state, which um, can be kind of difficult. There are people who are trained in sleep medicine in Townsville as well. But we do a lot of telehealth. Mm. So just because you're remote doesn't mean we can't do a lot um, online or via telehealth. I often prefer to work with local clinicians, um, mainly to try and support them in understanding what's going on, but also so they can look in the mouth and look in the nose and things for me. So if they've already done that, then I'm often happy to telehealth to families. Unfortunately, the internet access is not always fantastic. So in those sorts of circumstances, I really advocate for, you know, telehealth to the local hospital because that will often work quite well. So I do regular telehealth every clinic I do around the state. Mm. So um, that rural and remote should not be a barrier to seeking access or to referral at all. Great um, to hear. Now, my last question, thank you so much for your time. That, what resources do you recommend that are for health professionals or the public that you uh, find just consistently reliable, whether it's online things or handouts or courses, things like that? So probably the two go-tos for the Australian context are probably the Raising Children's Network mm -hmm. has a number of sleep handouts that are good for... Um, primary care and for um, families. And the Australian Sleep Association has a number of resources on their website um, that it can be particularly useful, particularly around strategies for management as well. Um, the American Sleep Association has some strategies as well, a little bit Americanised, so they sometimes jar a little bit for mm -hmm. Australian context, but those are probably the three go-tos that I would use, particularly the Raising Children's Network as handouts for management for families. Wonderful. Yeah. All right, well, thank you so much for your time today. It was an absolute pleasure and very interesting to learn all that from you. So, yes, thank you once again, honey. No problems. Thank you. 